retargeting ads. You know, those annoying ads that follow you around the web after you've looked at something online. Well, what if there was a better way to do retargeting? A way that was less annoying, more profitable in the long run, and managed to build your brand instead of just bugging people. That's what Shoelace does, and I hope today's conversation with Reza Kajavi will give you a ton of ideas on how to use retargeting ads for your business. Reza is the CEO at Shoelace and helps DTC, that's direct-to-consumer brands, generate more revenue and build brand equity with customer journey retargeting. If you've never used retargeting ads or just use some set it and forget it type strategy with your retargeting, this is a conversation you'll definitely want to take notes on. So without further ado, please welcome Reza Kajavi. Reza, thank you so much for coming on the Analytive Podcast today. It's great to talk with you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Of course. And you are the CEO of a company called Shoelace. Can you just give the you know elevator pitch or maybe the couple minute pitch about what Shoelace is and what how you work in the, the marketing field? Sure. Happy to. So Shoelace um, is sort of like a hybrid between a SaaS company and a services company. So we work predominantly with e-commerce merchants uh, to help them create what we call customer journey retargeting campaigns. So at the moment, we're very specifically focused on uh, retargeting, but we have this kind of unique methodology of retargeting, which is instead of hitting people over the head with the same ad over and over again, we help brands create memorable stories that kind of walk customers through a sequence of ad experiences similar to what you have in like email drip campaigns, but through retargeting. Um, and so that's what we focus on and we have um, software that we've created that helps our account managers create these journeys uh, really quickly and software that helps account managers collaborate with clients on um, setting up and, and running these retargeting journeys. So clients would come to us if uh, they're looking to kind of take their retargeting to the next level and um, through the combination of integrating our app with their e-commerce backend and some of their favorite marketing tools, as well as working with our account managers, they'll get set up with uh, some really cool retargeting journeys that help tell their brand story, but also drive sales for their business. For sure. And then just real quick, we'll dig into retargeting a little later, but what do you mean when you say like a retargeting journey? Can you explain like maybe what that means or give an example? Yeah, sure. So I, I don't know if you, you have show notes um, in your podcast. If you do, I can send you, uh, send you the, the sort of uh, 50 page deck that we wrote on this kind of methodology called customer journey retargeting. And the basic idea is, you know, if you look at retargeting, uh, most often what it looks like is you visit a website and you leave and you start to see the same ads over and over again kind of follow you around and they don't seem to be particularly intelligent based on you know where you were in the buying journey you know sometimes they might show you the the, the product that you looked at and that's like the level of intelligence um, but typically they, they don't like evolve like um, the way that an email drip campaign would and it doesn't really take into account where you are in the buying journey and so for, for us, what we mean when we say uh, retargeting journeys are um, retargeting campaigns that evolve as the days and weeks and months go by after somebody's visited the website and are very kind of funnel aware based on where somebody is in their buying journey. Have they visited the website and left after three seconds or is a loyal customer coming back to purchase for the 10th time? And how do we use those signals to tailor the retargeting journeys based on where somebody is? And the whole idea is to kind of nurture folks 
to move along that customer journey to ultimately not just buy, but repeat purchase and do so in a way where we are kind of driving for revenue, just, you know, obviously retargeting fits into the performance marketing category. And it doesn't make sense to run these paid ad campaigns if they don't, you know, make revenue on the other side, but how do we do it in a way that we're also kind of telling a brand story and educating customers who didn't convert. Uh, just one of the cool things about retargeting is that because it's so lower funnel, typically the return on ad spend is always going to be quite high. Um, and most people don't think about, you know, the 98% of people that won't convert through these funnels, what kind of experience are we leaving them off with? Um, and so these retargeting journeys tend to be memorable and engaging and are um, converting a bunch of folks, but also educating everybody else who, who didn't purchase, who may come back and kind of purchase over time. But how do we leave everybody who enters these flows? How do we make it so that they are a little bit more educated about the brand uh, in addition to driving for, for conversions and sales? Got it. Very cool. So then let's talk, I want to circle back into that, but let's talk a little bit about your story about how you got here. So how old is Shoelace as a company? Then how long have you been uh, a part of it? Shoelace is a little bit over four years old. It's about four and a half years old. Um, and uh, yeah, happy to kind of give you a little little quick rundown of how we, uh, how we came to be. Yeah, please do. Sure. So uh, Maybe quickly on my background, I, uh, I dropped out of university to start my first company in Montreal. Um, it was, you know, the way I thought about that idea was that didn't really have any money and my brother and I wanted to start a company. And so we'd kind of narrowed down our option to a few different things that we could start without money. One was a moving company, one was a painting company, and one was like a dry cleaning delivery company, uh, each, of, each of which we thought we can create and start with a very limited budget. We ended up opting for the dry cleaning one because the first two felt like a lot more harder work uh, right. to do moving or painting. And so we started this kind of um, dry cleaning delivery service and created a lot of software around making it easy for customers to order their laundry and dry cleaning uh, through the web and mobile. Um, and then a lot of software around how to operate a dry cleaning software business. Um, so tablets inside of the delivery vehicles, stations that we would use to like print receipts and invoices and stuff like that at the delivery plants. And anyway, I worked on that for about four and a half years through that process. I, uh, I taught myself how to code. It wasn't technical by training or anything like that, but by just kind of hacking away, I ended up uh, building all the software for that business. Um, and we ended up selling that company to one of the dry cleaning partners that we worked with. And I was sort of thinking about what I want to do next. I was partly thinking about spinning out the software side of that business, um, turning it into this, like, you know, instead of doing any of the dry cleaning, let's just sell software to uh, delivery businesses. So that was one idea. So you were, uh, if I can interrupt, so you sure. were a dry cleaning business, but you then built your own software to serve your own business. Correct. And, you know, we were a dry cleaning business to the extent that we would like pick up and deliver the, 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 the clothes. We never operated a plant or anything like that. We would partner with dry cleaning and laundromats. Um, and we would drop off the clothes to them. They'd do the cleaning and then we'd deliver it back to the customers. Uh, but we did operate our own kind of dry cleaning delivery service and we wrote all the software to, uh, to operate, that, um, operate that business. And so after that was done, I was sort of thinking about, you know, taking another stab at uh, starting another company because I always knew that I, that's, that's what I love doing. I uh, then also realized I'd never really had a job before. So that might be a good thing just to, just to you know, tick off the checklist to kind of have that as an experience. 
And I also wanted to validate my life a little bit just in case um, you know, if I ever needed to have a job, it would be nice to have something on my resume and then see if I could actually get a job as a software developer since I thought I just kind of hacked together my own knowledge, uh, didn't know if anybody would actually hire me. Uh, so I decided to join a company as a software developer and I moved from Montreal to Toronto to join that company. Uh, and that's where I met my two co-founders for Shoelace. Um, the reason I went to the kind of dry cleaning spiel is that my co-founder Alex, our CTO, on the first day that he joined uh, the company a few weeks after I did, uh, when he was just like learning about each other's background, he told me that he comes from South Africa and, and when he was there, he was working at this company that uh, as a software engineer that worked on kind of uh, uh, software for delivery fleets for routing optimization and things like that. And I'm like, yeah. oh man, <laughs> this is cool. Uh, yeah. It's like a great uh, kind of destiny that, oh man, we should, we should start this company together. It's like my, the first thought that I had in my mind because I was kind of simmering on that idea previously. And then at some point, a few months in, I sort of told Alex about this idea and we started noodling on it. Um, we didn't end up uh, pursuing the, so the, the software for, for delivery fleets, although I maintain that that's still a pretty good idea. I think, I think there's still room for, for such a software out there. Um, but we started um, you know, exploring different ideas that we'd be excited about starting. And we had looped in our third co-founder, David, who we were all kind of working pretty closely together at this company. And we'd go for coffee and meet up and stuff like that and, and kind of felt like we were the right ingredients for a founding team, uh, technical enough to build stuff on our own and curious enough to explore ideas and um, salesy enough to kind of market them. Uh, so we, we felt like we had the right dynamics to go a really long way without having any capital or employees or anything like that. And so at some point, um, we weren't able to really hone in on an idea that we wanted to leave our jobs to work on we just got fed up of, uh, you know, thinking about it and we're like, let's just rip the bandaid. Let's quit our jobs. Let's spend, um, you know, 10, 11 hours a day thinking about what we want to build and just work on stuff to see where that goes. We'd kind of given ourselves a couple of quarters as a deadline to see if we can get something off the ground. And if not, we'd sort of, uh, uh, crawl back into getting a job somewhere. So that's what we did in May, 2015, we quit our jobs and, uh, started exploring a bunch of ideas that led into Shoelace, which I'm happy to kind of go into what the early experiments that we worked on that, that stumbled us into what we ended up building. Yeah, because you came from dry cleaning and right now you're working <laughs> primarily with e-commerce businesses. And it sounds like mm -hmm. you didn't have much e-commerce, if any experience uh, by this point. Is that correct? Yeah, totally. So I, I was always been like a mix between an entrepreneur, a marketer, and a programmer, like somewhere in the middle, not particularly amazing at either, but <laughs> decent enough at all three to, to, to do something. Um, and, uh, and so during the dry cleaning business, I you know, thought obviously a lot about the online experience of like ordering, ordering uh, online, ordering dry, dry cleaning online, but also thought a lot about the marketing of that business. And I spent um, a bunch of energy trying to acquire customers, grow the business, et cetera. Um, and at the company that I joined that I worked on and worked at for a year, um, it was in the e-commerce space as well. And, uh, and so I was always interested in the, the combination of how does software and programming, uh, how can that play a role in marketing in general, how to, how to use that to grow businesses. Uh, and in my year at that company, I'd spent a bunch of time working on 
kind of engineering as growth um, tactics to help uh, the, the the growth team there. Um, so I've always been interested in like the intersection of starting a company, software engineering, and and marketing, uh, which is kind of where we ended up as Shoelace. But um, in terms of where we would apply those things, it was it was up up to exploration and kind of uh, randomly stumbled into e-commerce where we had. We were just like calling customers through Yelp and talking to them about the ideas that we had. Um, one of the customers we called was operating a maid service out of Chicago or something like that. And we we're just talking to him about some ways that we could help his maid service grow online or something. And then he ended up telling me, okay, it's one of my businesses. I also operate this e-commerce shop. Uh, and then, you know, we realized that e-commerce is quite interesting because there's a lot of structure around how the sites look like or on the product SKUs. There's a lot of interesting stuff that technology can can do in the e-commerce context. And it was just sort of uh, really picking up four years ago is when like Shopify was just sort of, uh, uh, it was obvious that this is a really big company, but it was still early in its, in its kind of uh, uh, escape velocity growth. And so we kind of um, found ourselves in the right place, right time kind of situation on that one. For sure. So you called up this guy who had a maid service. And yes. Says, well, you know, I'm not really interested or I, whatever. I don't feel like you can help, but I have this e-commerce uh, company. And then, I mean, did he just turn you loose on it? I mean, what did, what did that going from like, Hey, I have an e-commerce company. How can you help me to then like shoelace? What did that look like? Sure. Yeah. So among the ideas that we were exploring early on was this idea where we wanted to help businesses who shared a similar audience, but didn't compete with each other. We wanted to help them cross promote each other's businesses. So for example, we were talking to him about his maid service and being like, okay, what if we pair you up with dry cleaning companies? And I was like kind of a thing that we did as, as a growth experiment uh, when I was running the dry cleaning company, that we would partner with like student tutoring services or maid companies and, uh, and cross promote each other in a very offline fashion. Like we would share flyers, swap flyers, things like that. And so the idea is like, can, can we do something digitally to help businesses who have a similar audience, um, you know, complement each other and help each other grow. And so we were talking to him about that. And that was the kind of um, initial conversation around the problem space that we were tackling. Um, and then as we did that, one of the ways that we thought about helping these companies was, um, well, okay, so at first we wanted to put this little widget on, on each company's website. We're kind of like the little intercom chat bubble it would yeah. pop open a little thing that goes like, hey, save 10% at this partner company um, when you were navigating on, on a site. And so pretty quickly customers told us like, yeah, great idea, but that's stupid. I don't wanna put this like weird widget on my website and drive people away from my site to some other site, even though right. that other company is gonna do it. I don't want that. Right, it was kind of banner, banner ads in a sense, but like within their own little private network. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and so they said, no, it's going to ruin my website experience. I want people to stay on my site. Understandably makes sense. And so we're like, okay, what if we do this clever thing where instead of showing people like a physical banner, what if we do this like clever thing with retargeting? This was the time where Facebook custom audiences had just launched. So Facebook had shut down their FBX program, which was like their, their exchange prior to launching their own pixel. Uh, and so it was very early days of custom audiences and we we're like, oh, what if we do this cool thing with custom audiences where um, each person kind of swaps a pixel and when somebody leaves website A, they'll start to see a retargeting ad for website B and vice versa. 
And for us at the time, like retargeting was very easy. We're like, oh, obviously everyone's doing this. Like we didn't think that there was an opportunity with retargeting itself. But we're like, what if we can do this advanced, clever method of retargeting where each person cross promotes? And so people were drawn to that, including this guy who ran the maid service. Uh, and he's like, but you know, my maid service barely gets any traffic. My e-commerce site gets a lot more traffic. So if we want to talk about things like Facebook pixels, like you know, my e-commerce site is a lot better of a fit. And while we're on the topic, you know, you guys are talking about this next level retargeting, but I've been trying to set up my catalog and my pixel for ages, and I've just like not been figuring, not able to figure out how to do it before we get all crazy about this um, cross promotion stuff. Could you just help me set up retargeting on my e-commerce site? It was as simple as the ask he wanted. And so what that led us to realize, and you know, shoelace of 2015, 16 is very different to shoelace of 2019, particularly around this kind of concept of journeys was not what we went to market with initially. Initially it was like Facebook custom audiences are new. E-commerce is kind of blowing up. Everybody needs to launch a dynamic product ad and it's, quite difficult to do at the time. You'd have to go into your Shopify store and your theme.liquid account and copy and paste pixels from like a blog somewhere and then export your, your product catalog and then import it into Facebook. Today, it's a lot, very easy to set up dynamic product ads like native solutions and free apps and stuff like that. But at the time, it was quite difficult to do. So very quickly, we realized that um, you know we don't we don't the, the real opportunity was just to help customers set up basic retargeting ads, uh, just so they can take advantage of the strategy, and so the, that that's where you know a few of the customers we were speaking to along these same lines. As soon as we said, "Hey, you want help with your retargeting?" They immediately jumped yes, like struggling with the same things, the technical setup, etc. Um, and so the first version of Shoelace, this was like maybe two months after we quit our jobs, we had locked in a direction that okay, we're gonna help simplify launching retargeting ads for small e-commerce shops. Um, and so we built an app that uh, automated the pixel setup to fire the events that you needed for dynamic product ads. And it would automatically sync your catalog from Shopify to Facebook. And we kind of launched that app in the Shopify app store. And it kind of just blew up in our first year and a bit uh, was wildly successful just on this very simple idea of like, helping people launch dynamic product ads on Shopify. Um, company took a bunch of twists and turns after that, but that was our first kind of year from ideation to landing on, okay, this is what we want to go to market with. And then having a very kind of successful first year around this very, very simplistic problem of creating an, an automation layer, a very, very thin one around setting up dynamic product ads between Shopify and Facebook. In our hearts, we always knew that that's not, you know, creating enough value to create a, like a large business around. But in the early days, you're looking for anything that will, you know, move you from where you are now to one step closer to something, anything that'll get you traction. And so while we knew that that wasn't the business that we were going to like, you know, build forever um, and build a really large company around, it was enough for us to be like, okay, this is it. This is what we're doing for now. And then we'll see we'll see how things shape up over time. But that's sort of how we um, picked a direction and, and, and got started. Gotcha. And then from there then, what was the jump into, so that's okay, you create a little app, launch it in, in Shopify. Was it a paid app, free app, or like a freemium type product? So it was always, uh, I, I think for a very short period, we tried a free version, but um, it was always paid. 
And the cheapest plan at the time would have been something like, I think we had like a $9 plan or a $19 plan at some point. So it was quite, quite cheap. Gotcha. And then, so how did you get from that? Because obviously, as you said, there, one is there's a lot of other companies that are going to move into that space. Also Shopify and Facebook and whoever else is in that game, they have a major incentive to make it as easy as possible, right? Because more people buy on Shopify, Facebook gets more ad revenue. So you sort of built almost a middleware piece um, that, you know, you know, is not probably a long play. So how did you then up that or, or figure out that, okay, maybe there's something in this customer journey retargeting. What was that evolution? Totally. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, it's exactly what you said. We were kind of middleware is a good way to think about it. And we always knew that that wasn't going to last forever, but didn't really have a good plan around like, how are we going to go from that to something else? And we're kind of just like waiting to see, how the world shapes up, how the market shapes up. When do we see, you know, imminent death in front of right, us right. so that we need to be like pushed into action? Because uh, until that happens, we're kind of like riding a great wave. Uh, I think we're like maybe top in the app store around this and just getting a lot of good buzz. Um, so as we were doing this, we were always like exploring what could happen next and ideating, not necessarily putting these things into action, but doing a lot of ideating, um, particularly when we talk to bigger, bigger customers who were like, yeah, yeah, that's not a huge problem for me. Like we have developers in house and like, that's not a huge problem. Uh, and as we explored what, you know, uh, larger brands, what, what um, their needs are when it comes to retargeting or what we think their needs would be like when it comes to retargeting. Um, and we started to explore all these things as well as it, it was sort of like uh, the, the easier we made it for people to launch basic ads uh, the more people would launch like basic ads and just like set up a dynamic ad and forget it. Uh, and then more and more people started doing this. And um, I think retargeting's always been like this, even before Facebook custom audiences, but it, it, it basically like hit peak annoying um, within a year and a half, two years that we got started. And we were very um, aware of this, that from a consumer perspective, um, this experience is just like not great. It works from a conversion perspective, no doubt about it, because like, you know, you're hitting high intent audiences, um, but the brand experience is not good. And at the time, the other thing that we were hyper aware of was this like explosion of dropshipper e-commerce as a category and these like YouTube videos around like, buy my course and I'm gonna teach you how to get rich from Bali, you know, launching an e-commerce site using Alibaba and stuff like that. And like yeah, yeah. there was like an epidemic of this. Um, and it was very clear to us that those businesses were not gonna last, uh, particularly as you know, more and more advertisers pour into the network, the cost of advertising goes up. And these businesses, um, let's call them the dropshipper types, generally aren't meant to be businesses with very high repeat purchase rates. Uh, and they were typically, you know, hit and run businesses where they were able to make a tiny profit on a, on a single transaction and just like scale that as much as possible. And a lot of people, you know, were taking advantage of that uh, Facebook ad cost arbitrage, like before it starts to get super expensive. Um, and, you know, we looked at those businesses and we're like, you know, we'd rather bet the future on the businesses that are like trying to build a brand over time, brands like Away Travel or brands like you know, Glossier, like these are the, the, the one percents, let's say, of, of people doing e-commerce for the purpose of like building a brand uh, forever. And that's the, you know, one extreme and the other extreme is like 
somebody launching a Shopify store with like no name selling junk from AliExpress. And somewhere there's a spectrum there and we want it to be closer towards the ones that are building brands that are going to last. And so as we started to gravitate towards those business, tying our future towards theirs, because we felt like try to build a product for the dropshipper types, uh, it might work, but we anticipate that a lot of those businesses will go out of business and rather, um, think of a target audience that is going to last forever. So that was happening. And we started to think about those types of brands. We were like, okay, if you're this type of brand and you really care about your brand, your brand story and your narrative and your message and things like that, um, you're very careful about the story that you tell. You're very careful about the customer journey because every single touch point is a touch point where you can reinforce that kind of emotional connection, reinforce that brand narrative. And typically, these companies have like a story to tell. Like you look at Away Travel, um, their CEO is famous for saying that storytelling is a central part of their marketing, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it became very clear to us that if we wanted to serve these customers better, um, then we need to move away from this annoying type of retargeting towards something that is a bit more storytelling-like. So, and it was sort of that, that was our, our opinion that retargeting is being severely underutilized as a channel for storytelling, as a channel for building brand equity. Obviously, you know, the, the, the conversions are always gonna be there because it's low intent audiences and it's great, but most people just like tick a box and say, okay, retargeting gives me my six X ROAS and I'm just gonna let it run, but then forget about the fact that we're now annoying these customers. Right. Um, and so both from the perspective of trying to be a little bit forward thinking around like, where's the industry gonna go? How, we, how can we help move it there? And then also, you know, concerned about our own survival uh, in terms of this like middleware piece of creating basic retargeting ads being, you know, not a great uh, future for it. We started to gravitate towards this concept of journeys, um, started talking to customers about it. And we realized that some customers were like, no, that's stupid. I just want the DPAs. And they were more of the dropshipper types. And some of the brands, the ones who like before they launched, spent like five months thinking about their brand strategy. Like when they heard us say stuff like that, their eyes lit up and like, this is the best thing ever. I, I love this. And so we started to gravitate more towards um, uh, that direction. And then um, it's been a couple of years now that we've doubled down a lot on kind of really centering around journeys as a methodology. So um, the one thing that we've tried to do is like, okay, it sounds like this, there's a methodology here around this journey approach to retargeting. And before thinking about what could the business model be around this methodology, the last couple of years, we've spent a lot of time thinking about how can we fine tune and write about and evangelize this approach to retargeting journeys and all the while try to figure out what is the business model that we can build around this to kind of capitalize uh, around this to build a company on. And happy to get into that as well. That was a had a bunch, a bunch of kind of ups and downs for us too, as we fine tuned what exactly is the business model for us around this. Um, but as soon as we started talking more actively about the journey approach, uh, we realized that there's definitely something here and uh, have been spending a lot of time moving in that direction. Yeah, for sure. So then let's maybe move from the company, right, to actually the, the retargeting journeys themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so for people who maybe have thought about retargeting is like, oh, they, you know, they visit the page and they, they show an ad and you've explained a little bit like what the journey could look like. But if let's just say, you know, I come to you and I'm a company that sells whatever, like water bottles, staplers, I mean, you name it, right? Um, 
what are the steps you go through to actually think about this journey? I mean, does a company come to you with a full plan? Do you help them sort of flesh it out as they go? Like, I mean, how does going from like, hey, yeah, a journey sounds great to like, here is what the actual journey is and where we actually start deploying and testing. What does that look like? Sure, yeah. So the, the, the biggest thing that I've seen makes a really um, impactful difference when it comes to this question is uh, before it comes to retargeting journeys, how much has the brand invested in things like developing their narrative, developing their brand story, creating content around this sort of thing. So you look at companies like, um, let's say one of our, one of our clients, Roan, uh, who's a, who's a men's um, uh, apparel brand. And they just have so much content around how they're kind of going to market around um, um, outfitting the modern man and how, you know, um, the, the wardrobe of, 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 of the modern man needs to be something that uh, keeps up with his active lifestyle and something that can be worn at the office, at the gym, on the commute. Uh, and, and they think a lot about what is their brand narrative? What is their voice? What do they want to be saying to customers as opposed to like, okay, we're just selling these widgets. Uh, and so when the starting point is a company that has spent a lot of time thinking about that sort of thing, and having created content around it, then it becomes really natural. Um, uh, very similar to you know how they would do an email drip campaign, let's say, um, or frankly even design their website experience. If you ever go to a website and you know you're digesting their homepage, and you go from like top to bottom and you scroll all the way down, um, if a brand has invested in a lot of like storytelling and content and that sort of thing, as you consume that page it sort of feels like a story that's talking to you versus an e-commerce company that's all about just like, I want to sell you this product. That entire homepage experience is going to be very, very product oriented and you're just going to see like a large catalog of products. Um, and so when you have brands that have already set up though, like a, put in a lot of effort to create that kind of content and that kind of storytelling approach, then it's just supernatural. And there's a lot of excitement around, oh, we have all this content, now we can plug it in these, in these interesting ways. Um, and then we use that starting point to be like, okay, if somebody, let's start from like the highest point of the funnel for us begins when somebody has already interacted with the brand, either joined the mailing list, visited the website, um, you know, uh, navigate, like went on the brand social page. So at the moment, we don't do anything around like top of funnel prospecting where we help brands attract new clients, but suppose the journey begins when the brand has, the, the customer's already interacted with the brand in some capacity. Then we start to ask the question or brands should do that when they're kind of trying to create a retargeting journey around based on how much, how far this customer is in the buying journey, what are the, what are the right messages that we want to be telling them? So very obvious example is like, if somebody visits the website, doesn't even go to a collection page or doesn't look at a product, certainly doesn't add anything to cart and leaves after like 10 seconds. Um, then it doesn't make the most sense to plaster them with an ad that goes like buy this now or take a discount. Like they've not interacted with the brand enough. They've not gone deep enough in the buying journey. So at that stage, there might be something around like a video that the brand has released that just like tells them about the brand and the positioning and the narrative of the brand, or it might be an article that they were featured in GQ magazine or something like that. Something that 
is more around like familiarizing the customer a little bit more with the brand. Um, so, you know, a good example for Roan, let's say would be um, their target customer are people who are like living a kind of an active lifestyle, right? And go to the gym and they're, they're, they're already living an active lifestyle and that's the kind of clientele that they go after. There might be somebody visits the website and aspires to that kind of lifestyle and isn't there yet, but like wants to be the type of person who goes to the gym more, wants to be the type of person who's more active in their life. Then there might, they might serve content from their um, newsletter called the journal around kind of inspiring folks to live a more active, healthy lifestyle. Uh, and so this has nothing to do with like the apparel that they sell yet, but it's more around like, this is our world. This is what we stand for. This is our narrative. This is the kind of people that we serve and how, and, and so like, the, the cool thing about the brands who get storytelling right is that they're almost playing an aspirational role in consumers' lives, right? That like, if you, if you surround yourself in our community, this is the type of people that we all want to become. And so it's kind of bringing them into the world. Uh, and so in those earlier stages, you might serve content like this that are just more around like familiarizing the customer with the brand and, and bringing them into the ecosystem a little bit more. Whereas if you, you know, uh, look at different parts of the journey around customers who maybe left after adding something to cart. Um, those folks might be a lot more interested in like the nuances of the fabric of the material or reviews from other customers who have bought this product before. Or like um, what if it doesn't fit? What's the return policy like? And is there free shipping? Like a lot of these like objection handling type content that can be served at that stage of the journey. So it's really just like mapping out where somebody could be in that journey and then creating experiences, ideally using content that the brand has already created, if not kind of working with them to create fresh content. But often brands who have put thought into their storytelling, into their narrative building, things like that, do have a lot of content that can be you know, easily placed in various parts of the journey. Um, and then starting to think, you know, what, what makes sense to say where, et cetera. And then um, you sort of have... Uh, on, on the simplistic side where people are just running like a dynamic product ad or basic retargeting, everybody visits the website and they all see the same thing to a retargeting journey that might have like 30, 40, 50 different touch points. Uh, not that everyone would see like 50 ads, but different variations of like what could happen based on where somebody is in the journey and how many days go by. You have these like uh, relatively complex, like uh, retargeting journeys that are um, based on those dimensions I mentioned, like where somebody is in their buying journey and how many days have gone by after their last visit um, and using those things to create something that is uh, memorable and engaging and interesting, but also drives people towards uh, conversion because that is, uh, pays the bills at the end of the day. Sure. And so in that way, it's a lot like what you alluded to earlier for people who maybe have built similar campaigns like drip campaigns right? Intelligent campaigns, like if they open this email, then after two days, send, you know, this email, you know, if they click this button, send them down sort of this decision tree, if you will, if they click another button, send them down a different decision tree. I think some of the audiences built stuff like that, or at least if nothing else, very simplistic drip campaigns. Um, so this is doing that, but doing it on the ad side, um, not just on the, the email side, right? Yeah, that's, that's actually a really great way to think about it. Uh, we use that analogy a lot when we want to help customers kind of think about what we do. And it's sort of very much like um, email sequences or drip campaigns on email, but how do we use that in a retargeting context? Um, 
it's a little bit more challenging because email is a free channel. So you can sort of do this thing and you don't have to pay for each impression. So it gets, there's a lot of pressure that, you know, when you want to bring this concept into the retargeting context, you have to pay for every impression. So ultimately, you know, it takes a lot of, uh, a lot more attention to detail and, um, a B testing and kind of uh, nerding out about getting it right so that you're able to, at the end of the day, get the kind of return on ad spend uh, um, targets that justify spending money on this channel because, you know, most brands don't have the money to deploy on brand marketing campaigns, right? Like large companies barely can do that. But, you know, when you're a McDonald's or something like you'll throw tens of millions or hundreds of million dollars per year on just brand awareness and that works because you're playing a super long game. Uh, but most smaller companies of, let's say, like less than 50 million in revenue or 100 million in revenue uh, will not have dedicated brand marketing budgets. And what we've seen is that, you know, um, the approach that we talk about is an interesting hack to use retargeting as a channel because it's so effective, because there's so much high return on ad spend there. Can we sneak in brand marketing in here in a way that pays for itself? Uh, which is kind of very much what we've been able to achieve for our customers. Um, because even though, you know, let, let's take the audience of people that left after 10 seconds or something like that, there's still going to be conversions from that audience, right? It's not like everybody that we show the ads to are just going to be like, oh, great, I read this piece of content. Many people will read the piece of content, but others will actually move through the funnel and, and drive to conversions. Um, and we can use that to kind of pay for everything else. Got it. Uh, in a way that makes sense. But so it is very similar to the email channel, but very, very different in the same, in the sense that, you know, you're putting, you're putting money to work in this channel. For sure. So then let's talk though about the KPIs that you use, right? So if somebody, let's say we have that audience that's very low engagement, you know, they visit the social page and then you start showing them a video of like, you know, what it means to be a modern man, right? Or a piece of content around that. Obviously that is still pretty top of the funnel and there's a long journey often before that person's going to buy a shirt or a backpack or, you know, whatever that person happens to be selling. When you're working with clients, what KPIs, uh, what metrics do you use? I mean, are you judging those top level campaigns on return on ad spend or are you using clicks and engagement? Like how do you sort of measure those top level stuff before you get into revenue? Yeah, really great question. So the, the way that we think about it is if you take the overall retargeting budget, so often, as a ratio of like prospecting to retargeting, most brands would be spending something like 20% of their media budget on retargeting, right? So if they're spending $100,000 a month on ad spend, uh, most likely 20,000 or so is dedicated towards lower funnel retargeting campaigns. And so our entire world is around this 20K, this like retargeting budget, and that's what we advise clients on. So if you take this retargeting budget, the way that we advise people to think about it is, how do we dedicate 70% of this budget towards pure performance marketing goals. Just like, you know, in the older days of retargeting, we just want conversions. We need this ad spend to deliver um, top percentile return on ad spend metrics. And we're really, really optimizing for conversions. Um, but at the same time, there's this really good concept um, by Keith Raboy, who's, um, who's an investor I really like, he talks about pairing indicators. So if you really optimize for one thing, you ought to keep your eye on another thing that, that could get ruined if you really over-optimize on one thing. So like in the software context, it might be some engineers write code to prevent fraud. 
but then if they're um, if they're also like not letting through good payments, like they could celebrate all they want that they've you know reduced fraud, but you know they've damaged like revenue in on another channel. So you have to keep your eye on the other thing. So while the seventy percent budget is purely obsessed about performance marketing goals and return on ad spend and conversions, just like you know what people are used to on on paid marketing. We're also keeping an eye on the experience side. So things like, um, you know, the engagement, the click-through rate, how, how often people are hitting like hide this ad. Um, how well is this, is this, is this 70% scoring on like annoyingness or engaged engagement? And it, those are, you know, less hardcore in terms of numbers, but you can still, you can still look at metrics to find that. And then on the, on the 30%, we advise to look at, primarily for the purpose of storytelling, primarily for, primarily for the purpose of brand building, of like just getting out a narrative, educating customers about what we are, but also thinking about a minimum threshold of return on ad spend that we need to hit in a way to justify this effort. So on the 30% budget where we're kind of primarily focused on brand stuff, um, it might not deliver the kind of 5X 8x, 10x return on ad spend figures that the 70% performance goals would, but it would still deliver like 1x, 1.5x, whatever kind of minimum threshold that the uh, brand is comfortable with. So that, that, that really helps to be like, okay, this is the threshold for this kind of 30% of the campaigns. We really want to be focused on brand experiences that are telling our story, uh, but we're really going to fine tune them and A-B test and, and, um, make it in a way that they are hitting the minimum threshold that we've, that we've sort of set. Um, so if you look at both of those things, it's like the 70% obsessed about performance goals, typical KPIs like return on ad spend. Um, you know, that's kind of the most important one. What are the cost per acquisition targets? Like really optimizing for those figures, but also looking at, um, you know, more engagement uh, experiences and also like qualitatively trying to look at, in this 70% budget, are we really just like hitting everyone with the same thing? Or um, these are not KPIs that are available in the Facebook ads manager, but humans are pretty good at this at being like, how decent of a story are we telling here? What is the ad variety? Is, are, are we doing like um, um, creative refresh so we're not just like showing people the same stuff? And, it, and so the 70% should score moderately well on, the, on those things, but like obsessed about pure performance metrics, whereas, uh, the 30% brand side is kind of the, 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 the flipped version, primarily focused on storytelling, education, brand experiences, but then um, looking at additional KPIs. I'll, I'll just throw one more thing in there too, is that um, on the 30% side, it might be that conversions mean something a little bit different. So on the 70% budget, what we care about is sales, what we care about is conversion, what we care about is return on ad spend, uh, but we might greatly value things like an email address captured on the 30% budget because these people are like higher and higher in the funnel. If they engage with some of our content and then drop an email address, um, that's a nice win. Or for example, if they sign up for a store account, that's a nice win. Um, if they engage with a messenger bot, so now they're on the, on the messenger subscriber list, that's an interesting win. Um, so, you know, the the minimum threshold of like, return on ad spend being positive, uh, generally one or higher on that 30% brand building storytelling side is great. But then you have these like um, additional things, additional wins like new subscribers, new email lists, things like that. Um, 
So th that's roughly how we think about it. Gotcha. Yeah, we call those uh, micro conversions. Right? Yeah, that's like, a good name. Like, you know, macro and micro, right? So macro is like, okay, they pull up their credit card, like, you know, they spend money. Micro is, yeah, an email sign up, uh, you know, messenger, any of those things that are like, yes, they are further down the funnel than they were beforehand. But, you know, yeah, it's hard to justify from a revenue standpoint, but we know we're, we're moving in the right direction. I'm going to write that down. I love micro conversions. That's great. Um, so then really that 30% then it sounds like the goal is basically from a, a dollars and cents standpoint to break even, but then use that to leverage the brand for long-term value. That's yep. Okay. Very good way to put it. Yep. Right. So you're not losing money. You're not just like, yeah, we're just going to like take your 30% of, you know, or really it's what 6% probably because it's only 20% of their total spend. And, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we're just going to try and break even with it. So, um, a couple of questions. One, you know, we've talked a ton about retargeting and I had a question here. I still kind of want your answer. We, we might've already covered it, but like, what do you see most people get wrong with retargeting, especially in the e-commerce space? So people who are running Shopify stores say that, you know, they're a couple million in revenue. They're doing well. What are the big mistakes they're making? Yeah. I, I'd say usually the biggest mistake is like, you know, treating retargeting with like a set it and forget it mentality. And I don't, I don't blame teams for this because when you look at, you know, most of the paid media dollars are going towards top of funnel. So that generally gets all the love and attention and brands and teams are, are, you know, usually very strapped thin for time. And so retargeting often is left to the back burner. And we, when we talk to brands, usually there's this kind of, I don't want to say sense of guilt, but like this feeling that we could be doing more here. And we've really just, you know, uh, because the conversion numbers tend to be pretty good, often even if you like set up a basic retargeting ad and let it run, um, you look at the dashboards like, oh, that's doing pretty good. Let me try to spend my time optimizing the campaigns that uh, are costing us a lot of money or burning money like on the top of funnel side, which tend to be really hard to nail. Um, and so often they kind of um, forget about it. And I think a big thing that's changing um, you know, this has always been true, but I think it's never been more true these days where uh, retention starts to play a really, really big role on marketing teams' minds where, you know, in the early days of, of um, the Facebook ad rise, you were able to kind of pour money into Facebook as a channel and scale it incredibly high and sort of become profitable on those first transactions. But as we reach kind of plateau here and now it's like, everybody complains about the rise of CAC and how difficult it is and how hard it is to make money on these channels. You start to see people skew towards, um, you know, how do we have a business that has strong repeat purchase rates and retention rates. And broadly speaking, I think a lot of people are gravitating towards this and being like, how do we, um, how do we invest and obsess about retar uh, retention in a way that helps us, with our overall goals, because otherwise it's very hard to make any math work unless we have like higher LTVs, higher retention rates, et cetera. And then, you know, you go, that's the higher level and you go a couple threads down. It's like, okay, how do we drive retention? One of the best ways to do this is to have a phenomenal brand, right? You look at the biggest brands, um, uh, the, the companies with the best retention rates of all time, ones who almost like have cult like followers like Lululemon or Apple. And these are the elites, right? Like these are the greats. It's hard to replicate those, but the flavor of what they get right is a phenomenal brand that people love such that they want to buy repeatedly from these companies. Obviously product needs to be great. It goes without saying, but uh, as, as an, as an addition to that, 
uh, brand is a really important driver to retention. Um, and so assuming that, you know, brands are aligned with those things, uh, then we get to a point of like, okay, how do we incorporate this idea of building brand experiences so that we are emulating in, a, in even a small way what it takes to kind of build the kind of brands that have really strong retention. Um, and under that framework, I think what people get wrong most of the time is that their retargeting strategy is not only not helping that, but uh, being kind of detrimental if customers are getting annoyed and bombarded by seeing the same ad over and over again, that's going to have like a negative impact and the negative feeling towards that brand. And so for us, the biggest opportunity um, kind of very much around the theme we've been talking about this whole time is that um, how do we not overlook retargeting as a channel that can be used in a way to build brand experiences while also um, you know, doing really, really well on the uh, conversion side and revenue generating side. Um, but the first few things sort of have to become true first. If like, if brands aren't thinking about their retention strategy and how brand matters as a, as a, as a, as a, a component of that and how they design their marketing experiences such that they're enforcing a brand and a narrative, um, then they're, they won't understand what we're saying. They'll be like, I, I, I don't get it. But but a lot of people are thinking about those, those broader themes. And then, you know, um, this idea of using retargeting as a storytelling channel, um, just like you would other channels like um, email and others uh, becomes kind of an obvious opportunity that people have missed. I think the, the bigger question tends to be around now that we have all of these different channels, SMS, email, pop-ups, push notifications, all these different things that like, in silos from a tactical perspective, you launch the campaign and then the analytics dashboards show you good results. So you kind of get addicted to them and keep doing them over and over again. I think the bigger question that we have as an industry is like, is anyone looking at how all of these experiences are tying together from the end customer standpoint and how we might be uh, really butchering these tactics and, um, and you know, cannibalizing our long-term efforts by really overdoing the short-term ones. Um, so we're just trying to solve that problem on the retargeting side to be, let's obsess about the short-term goals. Nobody's saying like, let's not care about revenue. Like that's not gonna happen. It's super critical, but how do we do that in a way that doesn't cannibalize our long-term business? Um, and, you know, at the moment, we're just obsessed about that problem on the retargeting side, but I think that's a, that's a broader question that we need to be thinking about and answering. Um, as, a, as an industry-wide, I'd say. How do you work with uh, with other agency partners, you know, considering there's a lot, a lot of times maybe a lot of cooks in the kitchen, right, when it comes to marketing for these companies? Yeah, so um, you know, it's interesting that we've become so unique in, in, uh, in the way that things have uh, um, shaped for us that it's sometimes... Uh, very, very seamless to work with teams and sometimes can get a little bit awkward and we, we, we work through those uh, with, with the brands that we work with. So what I mean by that is that um, you know, we have obsessed so much about how to create retargeting journeys for the last few years. Uh, and, and I was saying earlier in the conversation that typically a lot of the brands that we, we speak to, it's not like it's the first time they, they come across this idea, right? 
they've, you know, they've often had like a meeting or something where like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we used retargeting, did all this cool stuff with it, got super excited. And then when they thought about like the amount of work involved to set those up, uh, kind of get discouraged and then usually never falls up high enough on the priority list because of the amount of effort. And so what we've been doing for the last couple of years is trying to chip away as much as possible towards the effort required to set those up uh, and how our account managers can kind of do those really quickly. So on the technology side, we have deep integrations with the brand's e-commerce store uh, where we kind of um, uh, fire unique pixel events around how much time somebody spent on the site, how much, um, how many, is it their first visit or their third visit, things that are kind of uh, above and beyond the regular Facebook pixel. Uh, but then we also have deep integrations with the rest of their marketing stack, like their email provider, their reviews provider, and other, other apps that they use that help us incorporate those other channels in our retargeting. Uh, and then a lot of internal tools, which is, this is where kind of the bulk of our effort has gone actually, to help our account managers create these journeys really fast. So that, you know, we might be able to create a kind of 12 step retargeting journey in, in a matter of like half an hour where it could take somebody um, an entire day or something like that to do. Right. To um, set that up in Google Tag Manager or, you know, with audiences or even Facebook would be, yeah, quite a, quite a process. Right. And so, you know, when, when people look objectively at uh, the efficiency with which we're able to operate, it usually never makes sense for somebody other than us to do it. Uh, just like objectively, but then there's around like going around the, the, the human awkwardness around like, you know, is that true? How do we talk about that? How do we figure it out? Uh, and, you know, with agency partners, it can get interesting when uh, we involve the brand to figure it out. And what we usually do is uh, we ask the brand to reduce the return on ad spend expectations that they would typically have from their agency partner that's like typically managing their spend. Because often um, a marketing agency would want to keep all of spend, including retargeting, because retargeting has a really good return on ad spend and the blend will help them, you know, prove their worth to a client. But if the client goes, okay, you know what, I want Shoelace to do the retargeting and I'm not just going to ask you to hit the same ROAS goals <laughs> if I take retargeting away, um, but instead I'll reduce the ROAS targets for you. Uh, often um, agency partners get very excited about that because they would rather spend all their time on the top of the funnel anyway. Uh, you know, that's where uh, most of the ad spend goes. Most of their, the agency will make most of their money on that side of the funnel anyway. And doing retargeting our way is so annoying for anyone that's just like using the regular tools that um, often it's, it's a nuisance to kind of do it this way. And so when we have an open conversation about it, it's very natural for Shoelace to be the kind of retargeting solution. Um, and we work very well with kind of external parties on that. Uh, but we do often, I think, work best with internal teams uh, because the internal team isn't worried about like, okay, I'm trying to keep this client happy and it's not like uh, fighting for a client, let's say, which, which can get awkward, but we have great agency partners that we work with. Those things are not a huge issue. But internal teams tend to be a really strong fit where they've been like, okay, we want to kind of bring media in-house. Um, and they spend most of their time trying to figure out new channels, new sources of traffic, et cetera, and then completely feel like retargeting is taken off their hands um, by somebody who's so specialized. That tends to work really, really well, especially when kind of they see all the integrations we have and the tech that we've built uh, makes it a pretty obvious uh, choice for folks. Just when they kind of think about the cost of people's time, if anybody would want to do the things that we do, it's just 
it just costs more for somebody else to do it. And so we're able to, uh, to really drive the costs down in terms of creating retargeting journeys in this way, and then uh, position ourselves as the most obvious um, um, provider to do it. Gotcha. Have you done anything outside of e-commerce um, or do you guys exclusively serve e-commerce clients? Cause I think working through this, there's a bunch of clients I know, you know, even of our agency and like the B2B space or these other spaces that would benefit from a similar type model. Yeah, totally. So um, actually interesting timing for this question, because for the history of Shoelace, we've always been super obsessed with just e-commerce. Um, and, you know, recently we've started to explore working with, in fact, we've only been super obsessed on e-commerce and just on Shopify, actually. Um, but recently, we've started to kind of work with clients who are not necessarily just um, on Shopify or not necessarily just kind of typical um, e-commerce sites. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we only have a handful of, of clients like that, but um, we are definitely open to conversations with uh, outside of e-commerce. Nice. Very cool. Well, uh, for the sake of time, I want to go ahead and wrap this up. This has been sort of a masterclass in retargeting. Um, so I really appreciate your time, Reza. Um, where can people find, follow you, follow Shoelace, however you kind of want people to connect with you? Yeah, sure. So I, I've um, recently tried to be relatively active on Twitter, just kind of writing about stuff like this, uh, tweeting about uh, retargeting, direct-to-consumer marketing, things like that. So uh, a good place to follow me would be on Twitter at uh, Reza Kajabi. Um, and then Shoelace, you can find us at shoelace.com. Uh, if anyone's interested in kind of learning more about the platform, what we do, pretty easy to kind of book a demo there. And then um, we also started to do a newsletter where we kind of uh, um, share these kind of topics. Uh, you can probably find uh, somewhere on the website. And then we also released a lot of like, slide decks and guides and things like that around this stuff. So if you visit the website, um, you'll be able to find a lot of resources around uh, material that we've produced around, um, around this topic. So uh, yeah, those would be the best places. Cool. Reza, well, thanks a ton. I've learned a lot and it's great to hear uh, what you're up to. Thanks for coming on the Analytic Podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks.